We're going to turn this morning to Romans chapter 3. We're going to begin with verse 21. Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. As you're turning to that, just two quick announcements, and then Dan will give us the rest of the announcements later. Next Sunday is Father's Day, and that means the baby bottles are due. So if your bottle's not full, then ladies, you better go out and do some shopping this week and save the change and and fill that bottle up. Uh, Also, Wednesday night, we're having a joint Bible study here at the church. We're going to start with a potluck at 5.30, and then we'll move into the meeting at at 7 o'clock with uh, Rick Weinert sharing his ministry with Oak Hills for us. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Roman, excuse me. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Somebody's listening. (laughs) But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. What hope is there in this old world? What does the future hold? Valid questions when we think of some of the current events that go on around about us. When I began preparing this message about three months ago, um, we had some terrorist acts that had happened. We had some economic situations developing. We had some political turnarounds and some natural disasters. And uh, as I saw one news article on it, the Tornadoes had swept across the the Midwest and into the South, and they interviewed one man, and he raised the question, is God mad at us? Valid question. When when you look around you and you see the ruin and and so forth that was taking place because of the tornadoes there, as we look at this particular part of Paul's scripture, we need to start back in chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, of Jesus Christ there. It is the power of God unto what? Unto salvation to everyone who believes. He went right from that into the first section of the book was the wrath of God because men chose to reject God. They chose to reject the the salvation that he held out to them. When they knew God, he said they glorified him not as God. We looked for several weeks at the fact that All have sinned. We'll come down to that in verse 23. All have sinned. All come short of the glory of God. We all need God's great salvation. But praise the Lord, Paul didn't end the book with chapter 3, verse 20. 
because the second section of the book is not the wrath of God, but the work of God that has been revealed to us through the Apostle Paul here. And we can sum up the work of God as we look at this, and we're going to take several weeks getting through the end of chapter 8 there, probably at least three months that you're going to look at this. But I have described it in our title as Our Great Salvation. That's not an original title. It comes out of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, where the writer of Hebrews says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation that God has prepared for us there? Praise the Lord for the fact that God here reveals to us his great salvation. A serious passage, because we need, I think, to understand what is involved in salvation. If, if we don't understand it, we're going to either miss the whole idea of being saved, or we'll miss some of the blessings of salvation. That We'll find ourselves struggling with doubts and so forth, where God wants us to understand and, and to rejoice in the great salvation that he's provided for us. I, as I think of what makes it so great, I, I think of an experience I had when I first went to Grangeville. I had only been there about a week when I got two different calls from, from two different pastors in town inviting me to their pastor's uh, fellowship. It wasn't really much of a fellowship at that point, but it was a business meeting. They always met for lunch at a local restaurant, and, and uh, I thought, well, got two invitations, maybe I should consider going. And so I, I timed it so that I got there five minutes before it was supposed to start. I didn't want to be the first one there because I didn't know any of these pastors. And, and uh, I walked in, and I was the only one there. I didn't realize that they all came late. <laughs> and, and so I stood around not knowing what to expect. We were in the ba- I knew we were in the back room of the restaurant, but that, that's all I knew. And in walks a, a, a man, perhaps just a little bit older than I was, and he says, who in the world are you? <laughs> a good introduction. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm pastor of the Evangelical Free Church. And the first words out of his mouth was, what in the blankety blank is the Evangelical Free Church? And then he introduced himself as the Episcopal priest. <laughs> and uh, a, a rough character. He, he had been in the military for years and then had gone and become a, a newspaper editor in California, and then eventually decided that wasn't satisfying, so he went to seminary and became an Episcopal priest. We got to know Jim over the years. He, uh, I wondered, where is he coming from spiritually? Does he really know the Lord, or doesn't he know the Lord? And, and uh, Several months later, Jim came up with the bright idea. He said, you know, all we do is come here and discuss business. We ought to get together and study the Bible together. And so we picked a morning, and several of us got together to study the Bible at, at his church. Uh, I thought, I don't know if this is going to work or not. <laughs> we had all kinds of backgrounds there. We had uh, Calvinists. We had Armenian persuasion. We had uh, those that were involved in the charismatic movement, those that were not. We, we had, I, I mean, we were as different as day and night as a group. And we decided we're going to work our way through different books of the Bible. When we came to Revelation, I thought, that's going to end it. That, that's not going to work at all. But we did make it through eventually. But in the course of time, we, we went through the book of Romans, and somebody asked Jim, 
Jim, are you saved? And he kind of scoffed at that idea. He, uh, he said, well, my wife's prayed for me to be saved, but, uh, uh, it, it, but it, it must have jarred him just a little bit that somebody would ask him that question because a couple weeks later he came back and he said, I studied this out, I thought about it, and he said, I went back and read some of the old bishops from our church. And he said, I, I want to share with you what, where I am at in that process now. He said, one of the bishops had written these words, I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. And he said, that's what I have begun to experience. And somewhere in there, he accepted Christ as his personal Savior and got involved in that process. But it's summed up in those short words, our great salvation. Now, if you have your notes from last week, you'll notice on the back of your notes, I gave you a chart there giving... Uh, um, the chart looks like that, if you can see that from there. Some of you don't have it because you got the notes this week, but uh, it, it'll be up on the screen as, as we go along here. Uh, I'm just going to give you the highlights of that, and then, as I said, we'll spend about 12 weeks developing that, uh, those ideas there. But thinking of the fact that I have been saved, we, we get that out of Romans 4 and 5 there, where he deals with the doctrine of justification. Justification is the work of God the Father whereby he declares the sinner to be righteous through Jesus Christ and regards the sinner as if he had never sinned. That's why when we come to chapter 5, verse 1, we're going to read, Therefore being what? Justified by faith, we have peace with God. We, the work of justification is in the past tense, and it deals with the penalty of sin. Christ paid the penalty on the cross for us. Christ died for us. He gave his blood so that we could be right with God. And, and the Father has accepted the sacrifice of the Son. In chapter 6 and 7, we're going to look at sanctification. That's a part of salvation. It's the fact that of what we are experiencing today as we walk through this life. It is the work of God the Son whereby he delivers us from the power of sin and enables us to live a life pleasing to God the Father. It deals with what is taking place in our life right now, right where we're living today. It's, it's the present work of salvation. It's a process. Uh, how many of you have experienced a change in your life in the last year? Have you been growing in your faith? Have you been coming more like Christ? That, that's the work of sanctification. What he is doing in that work is he is delivering us from the power of sin, its hold on our life. And that we have to cooperate with. As we get to chapter 6, he's going, he, he starts out, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, God forbid. And then he goes on to encourage us to yield our lives, our, our bodies as instruments to God. As we yield to him, we're delivered from the hold of sin, the power of sin, the habits and so forth that would enslave us. He delivers us from, from the, the power of sin. That's the work of the Son there. Chapter 8, we have the work of preservation. That is the work of the Spirit whereby he guarantees that we will never totally or finally fall away from grace and we will be delivered from the presence of sin someday. That hasn't happened yet. I don't know about you, but I still come 
face to face with sin as I walk through this life. It's, it's, it's all, all around us. But someday in the future, as First John says, we're going to be like him because we're going to see him as he is. We're going to be in his presence. And gone will be the presence of sin in our lives. That's the future that we have to look forward to as, as we walk through this life. So we can say, we have been saved, justified, saved from the, the penalty of sin. Today we are being saved from the power of sin. And someday we're going to be saved from the presence of sin in our lives. We're going to start looking at justification today. Incidentally, keep those definitions and, and there may be a test, so you ought to memorize them. <laughs> You had to get them fixed in your mind there so that, that you, can, you can tell me. If I ask what's justification, you can tell me somewhere down, down the road here. But today he sets the introduction to this in chapter, 20, chapter 3, verse 21, where he reveals to us that salvation involves an act of faith. He goes back to the Old Testament law, and he reveals to us that the Old Testament law did not save the children of Israel. It was not a means to salvation. If you read the Old Testament story, the children of Israel were saved. How? By the blood of the Lamb, the Passover. As, as they put their faith and trust in that little lamb, uh, God said, I'll deliver you. Uh, and uh, they, they still celebrate that event today. It, that demanded on their part a step of faith. They had just witnessed nine of Ten devastating plagues on the nation of Israel. And God came and he said, there's going to be one more. Everyone's going to lose the, their firstborn son. And while Israel had been exempt from several of the plagues, God said, you're not exempt from this plague. Same as the first three. They, they, they experienced them the same as the Egyptians. And then they were treated special there for a while. But uh, God said, there is a way of escape. If you will take a lamb, take it into your house for three or four days, uh, and then slay it, put the blood on the top of the door and on the sides of the door and, and on the, the bottom there. He said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now, can you imagine having witnessed all of those nine plagues and how the nation of Egypt has been devastated there and knowing that... It, that evening, the death angel was going to come and destroy your firstborn. I wonder how many people sat there in fear, wondering what's going to happen. Is it really going to work? What, uh, I mean, what difference is putting the blood on the door going to make here against the wrath of a holy God? But it worked. Why? Because God said it's an act of faith. And God said, if you believe me, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And guess what? We're saved by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ today. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ did on the cross for us today. The law then was given after that happened, several months after that happened. Why? It was to regulate the behavior of a redeemed people. They had been been redeemed by the blood. They had been brought out of slavery. They were now a free people. But one of the problems with slavery is if you're a slave long enough, you don't understand how to live as a free person. All your decisions are made for you. You're told where to live and how to live and what to do and, and so forth. They needed some guidance. 
And when we are brought out of the slavery of sin, we need God's word to guide us, don't we? We, we need that guidance as well there. So the law had its purpose, but it did not bring men and women to Christ. And we need to realize that that faith came, he says here, apart from the law. Why did it come apart from the law? Because the fact of the matter is you and I cannot keep all the requirements of God. We can't keep the law. It was impossible for the children of Israel. They needed God's help if, if they were going to do that. That's one of the problems that we face when we legislate morality today. Now, I, I, I believe we, we should have wise laws and, and legislation in, in some of those areas. I, I'm not against that. But we need to realize a, a, a law will not change a person's heart. It's a little bit like the cartoon of Dennis the Menace. He's sitting there in the corner. His mother's walking out of the room, and Dennis looks back at his mother, and he says, uh, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. Uh, His punishment was to sit in the corner for so long, but he said, I'm standing on the inside. Ever find yourself doing that? You know what God expects. You know what God is asking of you, and you just don't do it. That, that's the problem with, with the law. It doesn't give us the power that we need to live for God. Many people in Paul's day were trusting in their ability to keep the law. They were hoping that their good deeds would outweigh their bad deeds, and somehow they would make it to heaven. Paul reveals it to the Ephesians. He says, for by grace are ye saved, how? Through faith. It's accepting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by faith. We all need that. Chapter uh, Verse 23 says, we have all sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. If you're attempting to keep the law as a means of getting to heaven, you're in serious trouble. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. He was not being derogatory to the scribes and Pharisees there. They, they were to be commended in many ways for keeping so much of the law. The problem was... It didn't touch their hearts. And, and the same thing is true today. I, I mean, Jesus goes on to reveal in that chapter there, he said, you know, it says thou shalt not murder. And then he turns around and he says, if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder already in your heart. The, the, you knew the law, you didn't actually act it out, but your heart was not right with God. Now, that, that's got to make us stop and think sometimes. How many times have we wished... We could wring somebody's neck. We've violated the law there. Uh, the, the same thing he goes on is in the area of uh, adultery and so forth and, and, and the, the thought process and so forth. And when you come down to James chapter 2, verse 10, he says, you know, if you offend in one point, you're a lawbreaker. You're guilty of all. And, and so the law doesn't bring us to Christ. It's an act of faith here. Salvation also involves, he says in verse 24, an act of grace. He says, being justified as what? A gift by his grace. It's a free gift that he gives to us. Someone has described grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. It's an acronym there. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is receiving the blessings of God that, let's face it, we do not deserve. He has chosen to bless us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But he has showered us with his blessing. Mercy is withholding that punishment that I do deserve. 
But grace is receiving the blessings that, that we don't deserve. And we do that by a gift of his grace. It is freely given to us by Jesus Christ. Our salvation is freely offered to us. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. So we can be redeemed there. We have redemption through the gift of God's grace. Uh, redemption, again, if you have last week's notes, redemption is the release that's secured by a ransom. The ransom is the price that's paid to to secure the release of a hostage or a slave. What was that price that was paid for us? It was the blood of Jesus Christ. He went to the cross for us. He died so that we could experience eternal life there. But we need to realize it's a gift of grace, and it's only effective if we, by faith, accept the offer that he holds out to us. We see that in the last election, as it became apparent that uh, Donald Trump was winning the election there. Someone raised the question, will he pardon Hillary Clinton? A political issue, a political bombshell for him to, to face there, and... Uh, you know, the problem with that is there had to be a second question to that. Not would he pardon her, but would she accept the pardon? Because in accepting the pardon, there has to be an admission of guilt. And was she willing to admit she had done wrong? Otherwise, she, she could reject the pardon and the pardon would be of no value to her. It's only good if it's accepted. Christ died for the sins of the whole world. He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation that he uses here, it's only used three times in Scripture. It's used here and twice in 1 John. In 1 John 2, 2, he says, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And in chapter 4, verse, uh, I believe it's verse 10, he says, By this uh, in, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is the work of Christ by which he makes the Father favorably disposed toward us. Remember the Passover again? He said, when I see the blood, I'll be favorably disposed to you. When, when, when I see the blood, I'll spare your firstborn and in a sense, he says to us, when I see the blood, I'll give you eternal life. You'll have salvation. The cost of our salvation was paid by Christ on the cross. Was it sufficient for our sin? Well, First John chapter 2, verse 2 says, he died for the sins of the whole world. This is where I take issue with those that are ultra-Calvinistic uh, there. I, someone asked me, are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminian? Theology, and I said, I'm a Christian. <laughs> I don't want to be identified in either camp because I think both have some good points, both have some, some bad points there. But Calvinism would say he only died for the elect. No, that's not what Scripture says. It says he died for the sin of the whole world. In Romans chapter 10, Paul's going to reveal, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That offer is extended, but it is only effective if we come and we ask God for that salvation. If we accept, in a sense, the pardon, the propitiation that, that he has given to us. And because of that, he can say in verse 26 that God is both just and he's the justifier of those who come to him. 
he, he demonstrates both of those characteristics for us here. He doesn't merely close his eyes to sin and says it doesn't matter. He paid the price on the cross for us. Uh, Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgression from us. And that's a long ways. G. Campbell Morgan once in writing about this, spoke at the time. He, he was an English preacher for years, back in a previous generation. Many of his parishioners worked in the coal mines. And on one occasion, he decided to go, go and see what their conditions were and go to work with them for a day. And they got into an elevator and began to go deep down into the earth to, to where they, the, the mining operation was taking place. As they were going down, he looked at one of the men and he said, how much does it cost you to ride this elevator? He said, it doesn't cost us anything. It's just provided for us. And then he looked at him and he said, how much does it cost the mine owner? They'd never thought of that before. Somebody had to pay the price for that. When, when it comes to our salvation, it doesn't cost us, but it costs Jesus Christ. It cost him his life. His blood was shed on the cross for us so that we could have eternal life. That's why he closes it here by revealing that salvation is an act of God. Doesn't matter who we are, Jew or Gentile, all have sinned, all must come the same way. Galatians chapter 3, it doesn't matter whether you're bond or free, Jew or Gentile, man or woman there, we all come, the foot is level at the cross of Jesus Christ. We all come by grace through or by faith through grace there. It, it, it's his gift that he extends to us. We accept it by faith. It is a great salvation because it begins and ends with God. Philippians chapter 1 says in verse 6, He who hath begun a good work in you will what? Perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Has he started that work in your heart? Then Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save us to the uttermost, to the end there. Because he ever lives to make intercession for us. What God has started in your heart, he will complete someday. We will be like Christ in glory. We're going to explore more of that as we work our way through to the end of chapter 8 here. But it's good for us to understand the three tenses of salvation. Because if we don't, we're going to find ourselves worrying needlessly. We're going to find ourselves coming to some wrong conclusions there. We're going to add faith to works and wonder, have I done enough? Am I doing enough? When the fact of the matter is it began with Jesus Christ going to the cross, and it ends when we're face to face with him in glory. I picked up an article years ago in the Daily Bread. It's a story of a pastor in New England, pastor in Boston, A.J. Gordon. As he was on his way to church one day, he met a little boy that had a cage full of birds. He said to the boy, where did you get those birds? He said, I trapped them out in the field. And he said, what are you going to do with them? He said, I'll play with them for a while, and then I'll just feed them to my old cat. He said, that, he said they're, they're, they're just just birds. Uh, Pastor Gordon offered to buy them from him. The little boy said, mister, you don't want them. They're just old wild birds, and they don't even sing very well. Uh, Gordon looked at him and he said, I'll make a deal with you. I'll give you $2 for the birds and the cage. And the boy thought this was great. Best, easiest $2 he's ever made in his life. And so he said, okay, it's a deal, but you're making a bad bargain. They, they made the exchange. The boy went away happy, whistling, 
with his shiny coins. Gordon walked around the, to the back of the church, opened the door, and released the birds. He set them free to go soar up into the sky. The next Sunday in the pulpit, he used it to illustrate his sermon about Christ coming to seek and to save the lost, paying for them with his own precious blood. He said, that little boy told me the boys were not songsters, but when I released them, they winged their way heavenwards as if it was as if they were singing, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. We can make a joyful noise on the Lord even if we can't sing, can we? We've been saved. We, we have a glorious future. If we have accepted Christ as Savior, it's as if Jesus Christ has opened the door. We're free to soar heavenward. We're free to soar home. Can you say you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great salvation that you have offered to us today. Thank you that we are saved not by our works, not by our efforts. We're saved by faith today through grace. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that makes that a reality and a possibility. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.